So I want to begin reading at verse number 12. We'll read down to verse 26. And then if the Lord will help us, I want to give you four principles for mission-mindedness in your own personal life. Making sure that you are a missionary in your Jerusalem. Verse number 12, Paul says, But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word, for the great example left to us by the Apostle Paul. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to see these principles and truths. May we embrace them. May they be engrafted into our lives. And may they even today inform and shape the way we interact with the the world around us, with the life within us. And Father, may we be ever looking to sow seed in our Jerusalem, to share the gospel amongst our friends and co-workers and neighbor and family. Lord, may we ever be looking for an opportunity to carry Your glorious truth unto them, that they might be everlastingly saved, Lord, before it is everlastingly too late. Lord, we love you, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want to think a moment with you about the context that Paul is in. Because I am deeply inspired by what Paul writes here. It is very easy to just move through these verses and think, oh yeah, that's the Apostle Paul. But has it ever dawned on you that the Apostle Paul, uh, he was flesh and blood just like you and me? Amen. He put his tunic on one leg at a time, just like you and I do. Somebody say amen to that. He was flesh and blood. He was just like you and me. And we sometimes elevate him to this pedestal where we say, well, that's what Paul did, but I could never do that. And in fact, Paul did not see himself as a superlative Christian. He saw himself as the chiefest of sinners. But he was a man that was committed and dedicated and consecrated to the cause of Christ. And you and I have the same opportunities that he had. In fact, I'd go a step further and I'd say we have more opportunities than even the Apostle Paul had. Think about what he says in this passage and think about three basic truths for a little introduction. Number one, I want you to think for a moment about the fact that he was limited by his manacles. In other words, he had chains on his wrists and on his feet. These are not the words of a man that's in the midst 
of a 12-week revival campaign. These are not the words of a man that's in the midst of a two-month soul-winning campaign. These are not the words of a man that is at a place of great flourishment in his ministry. These are written from a jail cell, these words are. He is literally chained and shackled with a guard on each side. He is a man that experiences limitations. It would have been easy for Paul to have given up and said, well, you know, I'd go out there, man, I used to do it. I used to witness to people and I won people to Christ and I planted churches and I would do that, but I got these chains around my wrists, so I just can't go anymore. How often do you hear people say things like this? Well, I used to witness to people and I used to go out, but man, I got these health problems now. Now I just, I, I can't do what I used to do. You'll hear people say, well, I used to go and do that back when, uh, you know, my marriage was better and my home had harmony in it. Me and my wife, we'd serve the Lord together, but since then everything's blown up. Now I just, I, I can't go, I can't serve the Lord anymore. Well, preacher, I used to be able to do that back when I had a job that allowed me to, but now I'm working this different job and I'm busy and I got too much going on. Uh, preacher, I got these limitations in my life and they prevent me from doing the work of God. Well, here's the truth of the matter. There's not a person in this room with a heart beating in their chest, with a brain in their head, with air moving through their lungs that does not have limitations in life. You may have limitations they don't, and they probably have limitations that you don't. There's no question some people are better situated for certain ministries and certain service. But every one of us, a sovereign God, has placed us upon this earth to serve Him. And it don't matter what our limitations are. The Great Commission took into account your limitations. You may have limitations. Paul had limitations. We still see him serving the Lord. He's a man that is limited by his manacles. Number two, he is a man that is living with his mistakes. Uh, very, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that Paul sits here in this jail cell, yes, by the providence of God, but also as the product of his own stubbornness. He sits in this jail cell because he made up his mind he was going to go to Jerusalem. And on several occasions, God said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. I have, I, you've shaken the dust off your feet. I've turned you away from the Jewish nation. Peter is the apostle to the circumcision. But Paul, that is not your calling. You are the uh, apostle to the uncircumcision, to the Gentiles. I've sent you unto the uttermost parts of the world. Let Peter take care of Judea and Jerusalem. That's where I've called him too. But I've sent you somewhere else for another calling. But Paul was committed. He loved his people. He loved his nation. His heart's desire and prayer for Israel was that they might be saved. And it was so powerful, so strong, that he would even wish himself accursed that they might know Christ. So he made up his mind he was going to go to Jerusalem. And he does. He commits that he's going to go to Jerusalem under the uh, against the direct instruction and command of the Holy Ghost. Paul says, none of these things move me, neither count on my life so dear. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and he does. And it's in Jerusalem that he begins to make some mistakes. He takes a Jewish vow upon himself. And I think there is a good uh, argument to be made that he was probably wrong in doing that. This is a man that's written the letter to the church at Galatia. He has put off the yoke of the law, and now here he is taking a Jewish vow because he's trying to get some kind of credentials and entrance in uh, with the Judaizers in Jerusalem so he can win them to Christ. He had good intentions, but the problem is... He had the wrong strategy. Uh, let me tell you, you can have good intentions and the wrong strategy. Amen? And uh, so the Apostle Paul, uh, he, he goes and he takes his vow on himself and that sort of opens the door. Uh, he winds up in the temple and uh, there's accusations leveled against him that he brought a Gentile into the temple, which he had not done. But a mob gathers around him and takes him under sort of citizen's arrest. And uh, he is brought and only rescued by the Roman magistrates from certain death. 
and begins a series of events at that moment that winds up with him sitting in Rome under house arrest and pinning this letter. He is a man that is there, yes, by the providence of God, but also is the product of his own mistakes. He's there. He doesn't have to be there, but he's there because he wouldn't listen to the Lord. He's having to live with those mistakes now. I know there's a lot of people in this world that they'll say, you know, I used to serve God, but I made too many mistakes. I messed up. I got out in sin. I did some things that I shouldn't have done. I, 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 I treated people in ways that I shouldn't have treated them. And the ship has passed. The opportunity is gone. The door is closed. And now I've got all this baggage in my life, and I can't be a good witness for Christ. But the reality is this. Just as I said, we all have limitations. We too are all living with mistakes we've made. If soul winning was based upon having a spotless record, there'd never be anyone have done it except Jesus Christ. The fact is, and I don't think that our sin necessarily and our mistakes enhance our ability to witness, but they don't have to hinder our ability to witness. If we're willing to adjust our sin into the right perspective and use it rather as something that points people to the grace of God in our lives and not use it as something that is a stumbling block, then I believe that we don't have to be limited by our mistakes, though we are living with them. The fact is, you've messed up, I've messed up, we've all messed up. But if you had to be perfect to win people to Christ, everybody would be going to hell. Nobody would have won me to the Lord. The people that shared the gospel with me were not perfect. And the people that shared the gospel with you were not perfect. They were all living with mistakes. But despite the fact that Paul is uh, limited by his manacles and living with his mistakes, we find him laboring in the ministry. He made a mission field out of that little jail cell. He, he made a congregation. Every four hours he got a different one when they bring Roman soldiers in and chain them up to him. Paul is in a situation that's less than ideal, but he's serving God. I want to ask you a pointed question this morning. If the Apostle Paul, chained up in prison, there having to live with his own mistakes, under constant assault and persecution from without and within, with all of the health difficulties that Paul had, by the time he pins this, he is very likely blind or almost blind. His, his health is so bad that he has to have Luke with him at all times. I, I don't know how bad a health you're in, but you probably didn't have to bring your doctor to church this morning. The Apostle Paul has all these problems, but he says, you know what? All these things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. He says, I've not given up. I'm still winning people to Christ. I'm still looking for every opportunity, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but he did win people to Christ there. We've been teaching through the book of Colossians and Philemon. Where do you think it was that the runaway slave Onesimus was won to Christ? He ran into Paul in a Rome prison cell. And Paul said, hey, this is an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. I'm saying, I don't care where you're at. I don't care what you've done. Every one of us should be seeking to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We should all be sharing the gospel actively, daily, consistently in our day-to-day lives. Think about this verse with me for a moment before we jump into the message. The psalmist said this in Psalms 37, The steps of a good man, they're ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, and he will fall, you'll fall, I'll fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. David makes this acknowledgement in the 37th Psalm that our lives are not by happenstance or coincidence or by accident, they're by providence. Our steps are ordered by the Lord. And yes, we will make mistakes. And no, we will not live perfectly. But if we are willing to walk in the truth of God's Word and if we are willing to be a light for the truth of the Gospel, then God will uphold us with His hand 
and He'll use us for His glory. What is it typically that someone holds in their hand? Oftentimes it's a tool, it's a utensil. When you work with something, I don't know how many of y'all go out and weed the garden with your feet. Amen? Usually it's in your hand that you hold those things. I don't know how many of y'all go out and work on your car with your toes or your elbows, but it's in your hand. You and I can be used as a utensil of God's ministry, regardless of the fact... We do fall, we do mess up, but we can be used by the Lord. Now I want you to notice these four principles with me, and then we'll close this morning. Look with me at verse number 12. Paul says this, I would... Ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me... Now what things... Is he talking about? He's talking about him being thrown in prison. He's talking about the series of events that had taken place from when he went to Jerusalem. I mean, it's a fascinating, colorful story to go through and read about uh, him spending time under house arrest, witnessing to kings and to emperors, him winding up shipwrecked on the Isle of Miletus, him being bitten by a serpent, God miraculously healing him, and him being able to be a witness uh, to Publius, the, the, the head person upon that island. I mean, God had used that. Paul says, these things that have happened... All of this, this colorful story that you've heard my friend Luke tell you, all of these things, they've happened unto me and they've fallen out rather, Paul says, under the furtherance of the gospel. He says these things were not by accident. These things have been by providence. And let me just give you this simple truth this morning. We need to be mission-minded as we consider the placement of our life. You know, we're getting ready to do or we have. We've put out our garden and um, we're, uh, we're in that phase now where you get to put it out and then admire it without really having to do much work. It's my favorite part of growing a garden. Because it just kind of grows. There ain't no, the weeds ain't took over yet. But when we are planting that garden, one of the things that my wife and, and I will do, we'll sit down and we'll talk through where we need everything. Because there are certain things you can't grow side by side. There are certain things that need a great amount of sun. If you put ochre or beans by it and put a big wall of foliage beside it, uh, then at a certain time of day, depending on where it's planted, it might not get the type of sun that it needs. Certain things have to be in certain places in the garden because they'll get more water in those areas. We're very deliberate in where we place it because we want it to grow and to be fruitful. We have to rotate it from place to place. If you plant the same thing in the same place every year, some things are heavy feeders and they'll, they'll suck the ground of nutrients. You won't be able to grow anything after a couple of years there, so you have to rotate them through. We're very deliberate. They're placed there for a reason. Now, if we take our care and interest just merely in growing a garden to deliberately place things with a reason, with a purpose, then why would you and I think that God does not take deliberate care to place us in our lives in a deliberate location, a deliberate situation, in a deliberate association to others so that we can be used for His glory? Paul says, listen, these things that happened unto me, they weren't an accident. And I may have made some wrong decisions. I may not have done everything I was supposed to do. And I may be having to live with some of my mistakes. But don't think for one moment that just because I made some mistakes that God made some mistakes. God knew exactly what He was doing. And He points, I think, to three things. Number one, that the situation of His life was by the providence of God. He says, these things that have happened, they've fallen out. They've fallen out. Rather, under the furtherance of the gospel. It's interesting he uses the word rather. It implies that it looked like it was going to go another way, but God made sure it fell the other way. And it's almost as though he's saying this. He recognized, number one, that he was watched by the sovereign God. That God had him here for a distinct reason. Listen, you don't work the job you work by accident. You don't live on the street you live on by accident. 
And you might say, well, preacher, I didn't give much thought when I took this job or when I bought that house or what. You may not have. Paul was where he was because he had made mistakes in life. But he was also there because God was mandating his life. And God had put him in distinct places for distinct reasons. You are not where you're at by accident. You don't work with the people you work with by accident. You're not friends with the people you're friends with by accident. Hey, uh, how many of you are going to be encouraged by this? You're not related to the family that you're related to by accident. Somebody say amen right there. Sometimes we need a little encouragement down those lines, don't we? It is not by accident that you find yourself in the situation that you're in. And so Paul looks at his situation he says, You know, I can't help but notice that I must have a sovereign God that's watching over me. His providence has put me here. Look at verse number 13. He says this, So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. He recognizes that not only his situation, him being in prison, but his location. The fact that he is chained up to these royal guards. The fact that he is under house arrest in Rome, it's very interesting because him being in Rome at this moment hinged on four words. Four words. He's there before Felix, and he knows that uh, he's probably about to be pronounced unto death or to long-term imprisonment. And so he invokes his Roman citizenship. And Paul says four words. He says, I appeal unto Caesar. As a Roman citizen, it was his right, not only his right, but his duty and responsibility from the moment that he spoke those words to go and appear before Caesar. At that moment, Nero was the emperor of Rome. And he set his course by four words. Four words made the difference between him spending and living out his days in Jerusalem or him spending and living out his days in Caesarea Philippi, or him spending and living out his days in Rome. Four words. It seems like a small thing. And yet now as Paul looks backwards, he thinks to himself, man, those four words and the wisdom of God got me in places that I could have never got into by myself. I wrote it down this way. In verse 12, he reminds himself that he's watched by the sovereign. In verse number 13, he reminds himself that he's being watched by the politicians that he is given the opportunity to witness to people in the palace, in the royal family. And from what it says in verse number 13, it would seem in some other places in the New Testament that he had won people to Christ in the royal family. History tells us that before he was executed by Nero, he even got to declare his case before wicked Emperor Nero. Even Nero went to the grave having heard a clear presentation of the gospel of Christ because Paul was there by the providence of God. So why would you and I think that our location is by accident? He recognizes that he is being watched by the politicians and he has been given entrance into the palace of the great. He couldn't have got himself there. That's what I'm trying to get you. God has put you around people that you would have never been around in any other situation. You may be, listen, you may be cussing the situation. You may be mad at it. You may be saying, man, I hate this. But God is using that to put you around people you would have never seen before. Hey, listen, if it hadn't been for the flat tire, you wouldn't have seen the boy at the tire shop. Am I right? Hey, if it hadn't been for the bad doctor's report, you wouldn't have met those nurses at that doctor's office. Hey, uh, on and on we could go. Maybe some of y'all got some warrants out for your rest. But if you do, you would have never got to meet that parole officer. What I'm getting at is this. God is through those situations putting you in a place where you can witness to people that you would have never seen them in any other circumstance. Your location is deliberate. And then his associations. He says this in verse number 14, 
He says, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In verse number 12, he sees the providence of God. Verse number 13, he's got in mind the palace of the great. In verse 14, he's thinking about the preachers of the gospel. And he recognizes that he's being watched not only by the sovereign, not only by the politicians, but he's also being watched by the brethren. In other words, God has put him not just around a bunch of lost folks who can win them to Christ, but He has put him within clear view of a bunch of saved folks that need to grow bolder in their testimony. I think oftentimes when we are trying to be mission-minded in our relationships, especially in work or family or wherever it might be, we always focus on the lost people and we think, God put me in their life so that I can witness to them. That's true. But don't dismiss the fact that God also put you in the life of some saved people so that they could see the testimony of someone else witnessing and winning someone to Christ. I'm saying this, that where you're at is not by accident. And the moment that you begin to recognize that the placement of your life, your situation, your location, your association, none of this is by accident. God has put you there to be a light for the gospel. You're a step closer to being mission-minded. Let me give you a second thing this morning. Look down at verse 15. Paul says this, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. We need to become mission-minded in our perspective on the placement of our life. But number two, we need to become mission-minded in our perspective on the problems in our life. Paul states a reality here. And that reality is this, not everybody's happy about what I'm doing for the Lord. He describes, he says, some are hostile. Some are preaching Christ of contention, of envy, of strife. Commentators have fussed and argued for uh, about 2,000 years about what Paul's talking about here. I can add my opinion to the big pile before we light a match to it. But my, my opinion is this, that what he's saying is people were taking the opportunity that Paul was in prison to try to advance themselves and to try to bring him down a peg or two. And they were disassociating themselves and saying, we preach Christ, but that Paul, he's a charlatan. He's not real. If he was real, he wouldn't be in prison. But we are the ones that are really preaching Christ. There's going to be some folks who will take advantage of your problems. And, and much of life is perspective. If you spend all your time looking at those that clap and laugh when you fall, you'll stay discouraged. But Paul says there are some that are hostile, but there are some that are helpful. There are some that are preaching Christ out of pretense. They're not sincere. They don't really love me. They don't really love the Lord. They're just trying to advance themselves above me. They're doing it for envy and strife. It's true. Some people hate what we do when we witness. Some people hate what we do when we stand for Christ. Some people despise what we do in the place that God has put us when we try to have a good testimony. But listen, there'll be some folks that appreciate what we're doing as well. And I like not only the reality here, look at the response that he gives. Man, this is powerful. Look at verse number 18. He says, what then? What then? You know what he's saying? He says, so what am I going to do about that? There are some folks that hate what I'm doing, and they're a problem, and they're a hindrance, and they're trying to cause problems in my life. And let me tell you this, before we get to that, can I just merely say, your problems are not always embodied by a person. 
sometimes as you attempt to stand for the Lord and witness, you'll have problems on every hand. Uh, Sometimes it's financial problems. Sometimes it's marital problems or family problems. Sometimes it's emotional problems. Sometimes it's psychological problems. Uh, It can be any number. Sometimes it can be career problems. But anytime you stand up for the Lord, problems are going to show up. I promise. I promise you that. And we get so used to looking at the burdens instead of the blessings. Paul said, the reality is there's both there. When you do something for the Lord, there's going to be some folks that are going to try to hinder you and some folks that are going to try to help you. That is the reality. He's not wearing rose-colored glasses. He's not pretending the world is different than it is. He's saying, I know you got problems. i got problems. But what are we going to do about those problems? What then? Verse 18. He says, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, He says, Christ is preached. Think for a moment with me about his undefeatable perspective here. He says, listen, I can't control what everyone does, but God is. I can't can't make my problems go away just by willing them out of my life. But you know what? God permitted them into my life for a purpose. In his particular situation, he's saying, some are preaching Christ to try to burden me. Some are preaching Christ to try to bless me. At the end of the day, hey, Christ is being preached, so I'm going to rejoice in it. But whatever your problems are in life, recognize this, that the providence of God sits lofty and high above your problems, and the design of God is so much more powerful than the destructiveness of your problems. Whatever you're facing in your life, you may feel at the mercy of it, but as a believer, as a Christian, it's not the mercy of your problems that you have to give confidence and courage to. It's the mercy of God that we take our comfort from. You may say, well, I'm at the mercy of my problems. Not as a Christian, you're not. As a Christian, you're at the mercy of God. And at the end of the day, God's going to bring good out of it. His undefeatable perspective. And you know how he responds to that? With undefeatable praise. He says, so you know what? I rejoice. Therein do I rejoice. And he says, lest you didn't hear me or lest my flesh needs to hear it again, let me say I will rejoice. In other words, he makes a statement to those outside, but he also makes a statement to himself within. He says, I do rejoice. And then he turns around looks in the mirror and says, Paul... You will rejoice. You have made up your mind that your God is bigger than your problems. You've made up your mind that you're here not by accident, but by providence. You've made up your mind that God has carefully coordinated your steps. And if you believe that, Paul, then you have to rejoice regardless of what happens. Why is it we feel as though we can rejoice that God is in control and then despair the moment we feel something's out of our control? Why don't we recognize that peace doesn't come from everything being under our control? Peace comes from recognizing that everything's under God's control. And whatever your problems are in life, you need to recognize. Part of being mission-minded is recognizing that God has brought those problems in your life to give you greater opportunity to witness to people and greater opportunity for growth in your life. It's not there by accident, it's there by providence. And so you need to look at it not as a not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. And that's what Paul did. Man, he had a prayer meeting. He had church with every soldier that got chained up to him. I, I, I don't know, but I would imagine that it got to the place where soldiers were probably paying each other to take the shifts off their hands. Man, don't chain me up to Paul. He's going to start praying. He's going to start witnessing. He's going to start talking. And if it gets real good, he's going to start singing too. And I, I just don't know if I can handle it. It's about to get too much for me. It could be, and you heard a Roman soldier say this, man, I'm about ready to get saved just to uh, get him to shut up. Somebody say amen there. And I, I think that Paul, he, he made whoever was at the other end of that chain his mission field. 
Because he recognized that just as surely as he was there by providence, so too were they there by providence. And I'm getting a little bit over on the side here, but can I just say this? That's how we need to view the people in our life. God has chained us together because He loves them and loves us, and He has a plan for us to be used to influence them for Christ. We need to look at it like, hey, they're chained to me. I ain't looking to get rid of them. And we need to look at it like, hey, I'm chained to them. I have a responsibility to them. Paul said, whoever's at the other end of that chain, whoever is sitting on that throne when they bring me into the judgment hall, whoever it is, that's my mission field, that's my congregation, that's my parish, and I'm committed to reach them. We need to look at the problems in our life with mission-mindedness. Look at verse number 19. I want you to notice what he says. These are very, very well-known passages of Scripture. He says, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul wasn't saying, I'm waiting to be saved and I'm suffering and that's going to secure my salvation. But what he is saying is this, that uh, what I am enduring is, is making manifest the salvation of God that He has already secured for me in my life. In other words, God saves us to make us more like Christ. Paul says, I'm being made more like Christ. This is being turned to my salvation. But not only that, to the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation, he says, and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Verse 21, you've heard this a hundred times, a thousand times. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is a very clear-cut declarative statement of purpose. He's saying, for me to live, to be alive, to walk, to breathe, to interact with people around, that is Christ. The purpose behind it is Christ. This is so integral to you being mission-minded in your day-to-day relationships is to recognize that the very reason you live is to be used of God for His glory. Now, listen, if your life is all about you and what you can uh, enjoy and what you can consume and what you can experience, that's not going to mean much to you. But if you fall in love with Jesus Christ, and if you recognize that you only sit here alive today and not in hell by His grace, then it ought to mean something to you to say, I ought to have a purpose in my life. Paul had a purpose in his life. It was twofold. I want you to notice it. Number one, there was the inflow of Christ's life. That's what he says in verse 19. This will turn to my salvation and to the Spirit, he says in verse number 19, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You know the primary reason you and I live? To become more like Jesus. That is the primary function. Ephesians tells us that we exist to be found under the praise of His glory. A lot of people get this flipped around. They say, well, our primary reason for living is to witness to people. And so then they will try to witness at any cost, any manner of compromise, any manner of shame to the name of Christ. Uh, they'll go and they'll try to try to compromise. People say, well, preacher, there's no bad way to get, uh, give the gospel out. Well, why don't you go out and knock doors in your underwear? See, the reality is you don't believe that. And the people that say that don't believe that. But they say that to be permissive about the methods that they use to go out and win people to the Lord or to try to do that. And that's why you got churches having church in bars and having rock concerts and all this. They try to make the church as much like the world as they can. But when we recognize that our primary purpose in life is to be more like Jesus Christ, then it brings into balance 
those two priorities of winning people to the Lord and of glorifying the Lord. Your primary purpose is the inflow of Christ's life. The things that you're going through, you're going through so that God can make you more like Jesus. You're not going through them by accident. You're go- and you might say, well, preacher, I'm living with my mistakes. Well, so was Paul. But God was still molding him into the person of Christ. There was the inflow of Christ's life. But then he mentions the influence of his life. In verses 20 and 21, he says this, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also, listen to this, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. He's saying, I'm like a projector screen. I'm trying to project and magnify and emphasize and uplift the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first point, the influence of your life, I jotted down this phrase, a dispensation of grace. The purpose of your life is that the grace of God might minister and work its way in your life and make you more like Jesus. But the outflow, the influence of your life upon others reminds me of the declaration of the gospel. In other words, there's a purpose that, that, that revolves around what we become, and there is a purpose that revolves around how we behave. There is a purpose that revolves around what we pour into our life, and there is a purpose that revolves around what we pour into the lives of others. And the reason that you and I draw a breath today is so that we can become more like Jesus and point other people towards Him. It's really that simple. Now, the things that populate your life may be many and varied, But at the end of the day, the reason you and I are alive is so that we can become more like Jesus and so that we can tell people about Jesus. We find the purpose of our life in being mission-minded. And finally, and I'm done this morning, I want you to think for a moment about the prospect of your life through a mission-minded lens. Paul says in verse number 22, But if I live in the flesh, he says... I, and he goes on to explain it very clearly. I, he says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. He says, man, my body hurts. <laughs> I don't want to sit in this jail cell. I've labored and worked for a lot of years. I, I feel worn out. I feel weary. And I know that the moment that I leave this world to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He says, what a glorious day that's going to be. He said, if I had my way, I'd just leave out of here. I'll go ahead and tell you, most young people don't understand that. But I hang around enough old folks that I, they've rubbed off on me a little bit. And you know what they say all the time, all the time, all the time. When you talk about health problems, when you talk about the prospect of death, they'll say, well, it really don't matter to me. If they know the Lord, that's usually what they say. They'll say, I'm not, I don't necessarily want to go tomorrow, but if that happened, that'd be okay. They say, listen, I know to depart and be with Christ. Paul says it's far better. They say, we know. We know it's far better. But then that brings us to a conclusion. Let's draw that logic out. He says this, verse 24, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. In other words, Paul says, If I had my way, and if God had His way without having to consider the spiritual needs of those around us, I'd be in heaven. God wants me in His presence. I want to be in His presence. I'm one to the Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm sealed, I'm saved, I'm secure under the day of redemption by His promise and by the earnest of the Spirit. I'm not here so I can get more saved. So he says that leads me to a conclusion. If I'm not here because of me, and if I'm not here because of Him, I must be here because of you. Let me put it this way. He recognizes that there is a reason that we abide. You've said it a thousand times. I have too. You're here because God is not done with you. 
You might say, preacher, I'm a young, I'm, I'm a young person, man. I mean, I got many years of life ahead of me. Young, listen, young is always ten years younger than you are, and then old is always ten years older than you are. And, and, and what you are is just right. Somebody say amen to that. So for me, like 21 is young, man, and like 41 is old. Where's my sister? But 31, son, that's the sweet spot. I mean, that's just right. Some of you say, preacher, I'm young, man, I'm young. I I wouldn't... Let me tell you, the first funeral I ever preached was a 75-day-old infant. You ain't too young to die, and neither am I. Death is just as close to you. It's a heartbeat away as it is to anybody else in this room. So if you're here, there is a reason. Give thought to this. Listen, I mean, I, I really... My spirit just wants to fall on the ground and beg you to consider it. You're here for a reason. It's not to cash paychecks. It's not to buy toys. It's not to buy bigger houses. It's not just to make it through. You're here for a reason. To abide in the flesh, Paul says, is more needful for you. He says, there's a reason I'm here. I'm not here by accident. I'm not here because I might as well be here instead of there. He said, I'm here because God has a plan for my life. Am I fulfilling it? He says, there's a reason that we abide. And so you know what he says? You know what that means? Look at verse 25. He exemplifies this. He says, and having this confidence. What confidence? The confidence that me being here is more needful for you. The fact that God has me here for a reason. He says, this is what this tells me. This is how I respond to that truth. Having this confidence, he says, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for the furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if God's got me here for a reason, then I want to find it and do it. I, I, I jotted it down this way. He reveals to us that there is a reason that we abide, so there should be a resolve that we abound. You shouldn't, your goal in life should not just be to survive from day to day and week to week. If that's what your life is, son, you've missed it. You've missed it. You're not living that abundant life that God promised us. You've missed it. Until you begin to see your day as chock full of divine appointments, until you begin to recognize that your calendar is structured by the mandate of God, that you're not here by accident but by providence, that the people you interact with, you're not interacting with them because we're just a bunch of pinballs bouncing around a machine, but we are being laser precision pointed into people's lives that we might influence them for Christ. Until you recognize that and begin to live that way, you're never not going to know what it is to live with purpose. Everything somebody does to you, it's going to be them that did it, not God that did it. Everything that happens to you, it's just going to happen to you, but it's not going to fall out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. Paul says, man, I, I recognize that God has me here for a reason and I'm trying to live and fulfill it. If there's a reason that I abide here, then I ought to have a resolve to abound here. And I ought to make up my mind that I'm going to do the will of God. And I'm going to reach people with the gospel of Christ.